Well, good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you again to West Cohasset Chapel. In case you're wondering, my name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as the pastor. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. If you're visiting and you're wondering why it's chapter 15, it's simply because we're in a series, a lengthy series of a consecutive studies in the Gospel of Luke, and we finished chapter 14 last Sunday. And so here we are all spared this Sunday in chapter 15, page 740 in your seat Bibles. Excuse me if that would be of help to you this morning. Just a second, I'm going to be begin reading from Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, let's hear the word of the Lord together. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. The hymn is Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave his ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Verse 8, Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing. In the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. If you would please let's stand one last time as we ask God for his help and his blessing over our time together this morning. God and Father, everything that we sang about you this morning is absolutely true. In fact, it's more true, Lord, than human words can muster. And we pray now, Father, that with our Bibles open, the Holy Spirit will be with us to conduct that divine conversation, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is your power. Again, Father, we ask for ears to hear and eyes to see. And again, God, we ask that may nothing cloud the issue before us. And so we pray that you would show us ourselves and you would show us our Savior And you would make this book, which is your book, live in us. For God, we believe that when your word is truly taught, then your voice is truly heard. And that is all we need and that is all we seek. Lord, I know that I'm nothing without you. I need everything. And I ask that you would help us all now for the sake of your precious son and our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, the last time we were together, we heard hard and truthful sayings concerning what it would mean to Jesus to follow him. And Jesus set things in order about family life. And 
what is the priority and he left no doubt to the crowds that were listening to him that he is to be the priority and he left no doubt about what it actually means to follow him. And so Jesus essentially declares that so great is the love of the disciple to be for him. So total and complete is this love to be that even precious family ties and family love and appropriate self-love and self-preservation is to pale in comparison to the disciples' love for Jesus. In other words, as we said last time, unless Jesus is above everyone and everything, you cannot be his disciple. So that our love for Jesus, our devotion to him is to be so strong and so supreme that although I love them and although I love myself correctly, our love for Christ in relation to those things essentially looks like hate. It is not hate, but it would appear that way. And we said, and we said this carefully, that Jesus was not saying that we are to love our families any less or to ignore them altogether or ignore God's revealed will about what it means to be a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, or a human. No, that is the stuff of cults. But Jesus' words do mean that he is to be loved first and he is to be loved best because he is already first and he is already best. And it's so important that we remember this, that it is only in reading our Bibles that we can truly discover what it means to love Christ. In other words, we need to let the Gospels tell us the Gospel. So if you're having difficulty with all that, C.S. Lewis helps us along the way in discipleship. He said something like this, the eventual and total cost of not following Jesus is infinitely more than the cost of following Jesus as our conclusions in this life will reveal. Now, if you were with us, you can imagine that after hearing these words of Christ, the question would come, how in the world am I going to accomplish this? I mean, sometimes it's all I can do to get out of bed in the morning, find my keys, get to the door, and get in my car. And we said that the response that Jesus was looking for was not like Peter. I can do it. I can do it. I'm going to get my stuff together and I'm going to get myself together and here I go. I'm going to do discipline route and here I go and I'll get things going. We know how that went for Peter. No, this is what Jesus would have of us. He would have us to have a humility that would drive us to the cross and that would keep driving us to the cross day by day to drive us to Christ, to drive us to discipleship because every Christian knows at least this, that we are being saved at every moment of our lives by His mercy so that our best days are never so wonderful that we are beyond the need of God's grace And our worst days are never so horrible that we're beyond the reach of God's grace. This is our God and this is our gospel. And so Jesus concludes, as you can imagine, in chapter 14 by saying, He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, pay really close attention to what I'm saying. Which leads us right into chapter 15, but it doesn't leave us to a different matter. Because as we said last time, in the original writings, there's no chapter break, there's no pause, there's no subheadings, those are all added for us. And so we're to rely on words and words alone to set us in our direction. And so you can see there that these words in chapter 15 are in conjunction to the demands of discipleship. And so we see there that some, but not all, in the crowds begin to listen to Jesus. And that's the introductory statement that Luke uses in chapter 15, verse 1. And I want you to know this because over the next several weeks, essentially what we're going to be discovering is five parables that are based on what Luke tells us happens in verses 1 and 2. So we're going to, this morning, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, 
Lord willing, next Sunday will be the parable of the lost son. And so you can see there, if your Bibles are open, that there's two groups. Group one, verse one, the tax collectors and sinners all gathering around Jesus to hear him. Uh, the word that Luke uses in gizo is the Greek word. It means, it's a, it's a very intimate word. It means extremely near to him, approaching him with intense interest. And then group two, you can see there in verse two, are the religious. Those people who you would su- suspect have, have it all together. If you just looked on their outside... They're religious formalists. Outside they look smashing, inside they're dead. And Luke says for us that those are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And these men were not the ones marveling at the words of Jesus. No, you can see there in verse 2, they were the ones that were muttering at the words of Jesus. Well, what is muttering? Well, I can guarantee you, I think that every husband in here and possibly Every teenager in this room has probably muttered over a thousand times, either to our moms or our wives, respectively. It's kind of like a buzzing noise when things aren't what they should be in the kitchen and you're trying to help and you're doing it all wrong and your wife tells you you're doing it all wrong and then you start to go, who paid for this kitchen? I bring home the bacon. It's my kitchen too and I can know how to do things. You know what I'm saying? Don't tell me how to do my house and stuff. That's what they were doing. It's an automatic poetic word, which conveys this idea of simply grumbling, mumbling, or buzzing. With not enough courage to speak clearly those, those mumblings and grumblings. So group one, you have the rascals. We, we've heard who have heard Jesus' words in chapter 14, and they like them, and they get closer to him. Group two, the mutterers, the religious mutterers, muttering at the words of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because, after all, they don't like what Jesus is saying. They're the religious elite. They got it all together. The people in the other group, they don't have it all together. And, and after all, we all know that we must stay far away from them, which takes us right to our first heading. If you have your worship folder, you can turn it and see that he, Christ, suffers with sinners. That's our first point. He suffers with sinners. So, a good question we could have underneath this heading. What is the muttering all about? Why are they muttering? Well, it's more than what you think, and it's more than what I've told you thus far. Well, they're muttering at its basic core because Jesus welcomes and suffers with sinners. Now, in this context, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were, were the religious voice of the common person at this time. So they were kind of like E.F. Hutton. When they spoke, people listened. And so the tax collectors and sinners were given a label by the Pharisees to certain groups of individuals. That's why if you can look there in verse 1, the word sinners is in quotes. So everyone at that time had a line of learning in that place that said essentially this. To please God and to know God, they had to become like the mutterers. They had to become like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they had to follow their ways. Now, in hindsight, in the New Testament, we know that they were absolutely wrong. That the vast majority of things that they had been saying were wrong. And we know that they're opposed to Jesus Christ. We know that they do not like his theology. Which means that the very God they claim to be speaking for, they are not speaking for. So the sinners, people like the tax collectors, harlots... Those on the margins on the society uncleaned the sick because everybody thought that if you were sick, it meant you were wicked sinners. They had no real chance to be helped here. And it's very, very important that we understand why because Jesus doesn't say these words just to fill up space. First, you'll remember in other places, Luke tells us that 
that we learn that tax collectors and sinners, sick or well, had no chance to be touched, reached, spoken to, communicated by the average religious elite person in that context. So, so right off the bat, basic human communication was, wasn't even really doable in this scene, in this setting. And basic communication concerning God's love to them wasn't ever even happening. Which mystifies the crowds and makes the gospel writers very keen to write. And that's why you read where Jesus touches people who are very sick. And he goes to people who are essentially ungoable too. The outcasts. Because up till now, no religious figure other than John the Baptist and Jesus ever did such things like they did and said such things like they said. Secondly, and this is so important, there, there were three rabbinic sayings that were given around this time at the very heart of what Christ is trying to tell in these parables and the behavior that Christ is showing by welcoming and suffering with sinners. In fact, we'll just call them the ungodly. And so the first rabbinic saying was this, and it was wrong. One must not associate with such men, tax collectors, sinners, even if it is to teach them the law. You get that? So Romans 10 here, how can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe that they have not heard would make no sense to the Jew of this day. It's kind of akin to the, the modern and incorrect religious notion that says, okay, everybody stay away from the bad people. Grab your kids, huddle them up. Salvation, sanctification is by separation and segregation. That does not work and that is not Christ. Rabbinic saying number two, which was akin to what we would call cliques or, or social, you know, ostracizing. See, human nature never changes. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and people like them, if people were not like them, not part of their group, not mimicking their religious behavior, you were called or categorized, listen carefully, as people of the land. Now, if your Bible's open, look at verse 4. As Jesus begins to tell the story, he talks about the shepherd going into the open country. The 99 sheep in the open country. Do you see that? And so this idea of being people of the land or the people of the open country meant you were an alien or a stranger. So if you were not like them, the elite, you were shunned. You were shunned by the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And they had a line of, in fact, this is one of their quotes. This comes from the Mishnah. It says, when a, when a man is one of the people of the land, one of the people of the open country, entrust no money to him. Take no money from him, or excuse me, take no testimony from him. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him a custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. Now listen, so striking with these regulations that the Pharisees were forbidden to have, to be a guest of such an individual or to even have them as a guest, i.e. over to their house as individuals. Of course, it's not very different than what we understand today. Okay, I don't want my kids, I don't want myself around those individuals because of X and Y. And you never can trust them, so you've got to be careful and we've got to be good stewards. And all that stuff on some level is certainly understandable, but on another level and on the right setting, it is not very biblical. It's what's called, someone said, keeping all the salt... You and I, Christians, off the potatoes. Everybody knows potatoes need salt. So what is happening here is these Pharisees and these Sadducees are essentially ignoring God's revealed will. And he's saying, okay, you can have your best pals over, but not all the time. Have sinners over. 
have outcasts over, uh, have people on the margins of society over, low street, high street, because sometimes we do get jealous of people that are very wealthy and we think, oh, they're going to have money, they're going to be blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, whatever. They're still sinners and they still need a Savior. So that's the second saying. Now the third saying was this, and this is what the rabbis would teach. There is joy before God when those who provoke Him perish and die off from the earth. That's what they were teaching. I'm going to read it again. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish and die off from the earth. You want to go, what? That is nothing near to what Jesus has said, and he knows better than anybody, but it's not even their Old Testament. Let me give you one example. I'm sure half of you in here know this verse, Ezekiel 18:32, when God says, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Recent events in our history and, and our year, bad people have died. You understand that? But God takes no pleasure in their death, declares the sovereign Lord, repent and live. And right off the bat, that should tell us what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees thought about their Old Testament. Now, I want you to see that. And this is not, I want you to see this is maximum intelligence on Jesus' part. Jesus is not speaking on the fly. He's not speaking off, a cl- uh, off, the, off the cuff. This is a good lesson for us. Jesus is purposely confronting the wrong, wicked, religious maxims of his day. He's paying attention to his culture. He's paying attention to his religious culture in order that the good news and the good truth about God would be spread and lies would be confronted. And he does it because he wants people to be saved. And so how does he do it? Well, here he does it by stories. And the simple and practical question that should be asked of us is this. How could they those that need to hear the message of God's salvation, the message of reconciliation, if sinners and tax collectors and the poor and the sick and the lame, how could they ever hear if they didn't want to be seen, they couldn't be sat with, supped with, welcomed by those who were supposedly in the know? What's the human answer? They couldn't. They could not be saved. They could not be saved the Pharisees' way. They could not be saved the separatist way. Just like we can't save people our own way. And so I want to say this purposely beyond the wonderful thing that Jesus did and the example that he gives us here. I want you to know this. Jesus came at an exact specific needed time in history. And he came at a specific needed time incarnation. It wasn't random. Because how could these people hear the message of God's redeeming love when those that were supposedly in the know were telling nobody that needed it? Does that make sense? It makes all the sense in the world to me. So this wasn't random that Jesus came in the time that he did. The world was in need of a message. That context was in need of a message. We should be mindful of that. And so we see that Jesus has this very, very keen preoccupation of supping with sinners and eating with sinners, welcoming sinners. Now you need to know this until we, and that way we won't get too mushy here. Tax collectors were probably the most hated among the Pharisees. Who Luke tells us in Luke 16, the Pharisees loved money. Because the tax collectors helped the Romans and the tax collectors helped themselves. And the -the run-of-the-mill tax collector got the job because they loved money. And they would use Rome and they would use their own fellow countrymen to get more money. They they were cheats. And I want to say this so that you're not too sentimental about this, too mawkish, too sappy and syrupy. Don't Don't go there. 
these tax collectors were not misunderstood. They were cheats. And Jesus is welcoming them. And Jesus is going to eat a meal with them. Jesus is going to eat a meal with these sinners and he's going to talk to them about himself and his redeeming love. And by the way, you probably know this, that when you eat a meal, even now in the Middle East, it is a socially is a sign of great acceptance. So in all this, we need to understand that Jesus is not accepting their sin. He's just accepting them. He's not passing out mulligans. He's not saying, oh, it's okay. It's tough out there, isn't it? I understand. You know, a guy's got to make a buck somehow. He's not saying that. Jesus will not sacrifice the truth of God's message for more pals. He will not sacrifice the truth of God's message for more pals. But, and we should all thank God for this, he will not sacrifice the truth, but he will sacrifice himself to those of us who won't handle the truth and can't handle the truth and don't want to believe the truth. In other words, and this is so important, and again, we should thank God for this. Jesus gives up all his rights, all his privileges, all his position, all his rank. He gives his very life. He takes his life and his liberties and earthly pursuits of happiness, and he lays them aside so that he can welcome and eat with horrible men and women who need a Savior. Essentially, Jesus is doing what he told his disciples to do, lose your life for his sake. And he does it again so that the most hated... The most vile offenders will have a chance to hear that they can be found, they can repent, and they can be part of God's forever family. And that's why Luke makes it so clear that those kind of bad people were always hanging around Jesus and wanting to listen to what he has to say. He wasn't changing the message. He wasn't softening up. He was being true to God's intent of the message. And we need to go here because there was a disciple that was a tax collector, right? We know who he is, Levi Matthew. And I was reading the Fox's Book of Martyrs and it tells us that in the country of India, Matthew was at length cruelly beaten because of his loyalty to Jesus. And he was beaten because he was preaching and translating the words of Jesus so that sinners in India could be found, repent and be saved by Jesus. And then later on, he would be crucified by the very people he was trying to save because he would not renounce Jesus. Now how'd that all start? Matthew 9 and 10. Hey, tax collector, I'm paraphrasing here. Hey, follow me. Okay, and then what do they do? Well, they sit down and they have a meal together. They have dinner together with many other bad tax collectors. And to be real honest with you, that should be all of us. That should be our keen preoccupation of how are we going to get them over to the place so we can sit down and sup with them and have a meal with them and tell them about God's redeeming love in Jesus Christ. Which takes us right to our second point, our first point that he sups with sinners. Number two, he searches for sinners. Jesus searches for sinners. Beginning in verse three comes the parable. The parable of the lost sheep. Verse eight, the parable of the lost coin. And again, this is masterfully done by Jesus. He's doing two things at the same time. And I think only my sister Andrea can do this correctly. Jesus at one time is exposing the foolishness of the religious Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And on the other hand, he's tolling, he's trying to explain to the sinners how, what kind of God there is that would save them. And that's my sister. She can zing you and she can zing others with a big smile. You never really feel bad about it, but she can do it and she does it very well. And I think that's what Jesus is doing in heal here. The first thing he does in telling this story is he reaches for common ground. Everybody would know about sheep. Everybody knows about lost money, right? It's very, very common. It's a common story. 
And so he appeals to custom, to their sense of reason, to their human nature. He wants to get the attention of the them in verse 3. And I want to tell you this before we actually go into the parables, that these are our parables. And so parables are not to be always understood as hard and fast. So if you read these parables and you don't ask the question yet, you can go home and ask yourself the question, but don't ask me, okay, how can Christ lose a sheep and how can Christ lose a coin? If you do that, I'm going to put you in the corner with the fellow who asked, does Adam have a belly button, right? I'll give you a nice cold Coca-Cola. You can sit there and think about what you've done in the corner. Okay, here's the point of the parables. Number one, it's urgency. You have 100 sheep, but as soon as one sheep is discovered, as soon as one is discovered, it's red alert. You love the sheep. You love the other sheep? Absolutely. But one is missing, and if one is gone, it's not right. So the point is urgency. Verse 3, the point is urgency. Verse 8, the sweet lady has 10 coins, 10 drachmas, uh, the equivalent of 10-day wages. And she loses one day wage. We can all understand. We can identify with that if we lost a, day, a day's wage. 10% of the money missing is red alert. And when we lose money, what do we do? Well, we stop. We start looking for it urgently. And the point is that in both these parables, everything stops because somebody is lost and they need to be found. Now, one of the commentaries said this, and I love it. He said, the lost situation of the lost sheep and the lost coin temporarily is a matter of urgency. You just want to work that out a bit. It makes the point that Jesus gives us all over the New Testament that the temporary nature of our earthly lives is to give way to the eternal significance of finding lost sheep, lost coins, lost men and women. Does it make sense to you? It makes sense to me. We said it last week, only one life, this too will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. So the point is urgency, but also it's exacting thoroughness. That's verse 4. The shepherd, incidentally, the shepherd is Jesus, of course. He's the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep, and he has such a good account of all those sheep that he immediately understands that one is missing. Exacting thoroughness. 99% is not good enough. The nice lady. Her exacting thoroughness. So what, she, what does she do? You can see there beginning in verse 8. Well, she lights up the place. Well, why does she have to light up the place? Well, in the homes in the Middle East, you either had no windows or very small windows, not enough life to make things right. So she's exact. She lights up the lamp. She begins to sweep the floors. They're not hardwood floors. They're not all the other floors that we enjoy today. They're probably dirt. So she's sweeping so that the light can get in and hit off the, look, the coin so the reflection will make you see what you should see. Now, it wasn't on this trip, but it was on the last trip where one of our kids lost their money for a vacation. And as soon as we found out that they lost their money for vacation, we started blaming one another. No, I'm just kidding. That's when I started muttering. I told you we should have had debit cards. You don't give kids cash. You give them debit cards and you owe the debit cards. But what did we do? It was real simple. We stopped. We retraced our steps. We were in the hotel room. I think we found the money in the hotel room. And we meticulously looked at all the places you should never look to in a hotel room. We lifted up the, you know, underneath the bed. Yeah, don't ever do that. We found all kinds of things, but eventually we found the money. And the point is so simple. Everything stops because we've got to find the money. So the point is urgency. Urgency for the loss. The point is exacting thoroughness for the loss. And the point is that God will not stop. And we should thank God again for this. He will not stop until he finds the lost sheep or the lost coin or, or the lost men and women. 
Now, this is, this is the love of Christ at its finest next to the cross. Because he's on his way here to die to Jeru- on, in Jerusalem. He's on his way to die. And yet he takes the time to paint this wonderful picture. 99 sheep, 9 coins. Success doesn't come until everybody's found. Success doesn't come until all the coins are accounted for. And again, we've we got to know this. this is, Jesus is telling us, this is not random stuff, how we became found. It's not like I bumped into somebody and they told me about Christ or I bumped into this person and I just happened to call this person. The Lord God of heaven has been searching this out since day one of our existence. He's been sweeping through the days of our lives. He's been walking down the corridors of our lives. He's planning every moment, every nanosecond of that moment to find us. That's how important and valuable we are. So that when he sweeps the floor of our lives, Eureka, we've been found. And again, this is reasonable. Now, everybody would understand this. The question, okay, would you ignore a lost sheep? No. Would you ignore a lost coin? No. Then why in the world would you ever imagine that God would take such an approach with his beloved and leave them lost? Why? Now, I know why. Because I'm a sinful person and I, sometimes I like to put me in the place of God and I know what I would do. But thanks be to God that the Bible tells me what God has done and will continue to do. Do you, do you remember that story a long time ago? I don't think I've told it before. And I'm just going to rip through it because it's a Tolstoy story. The idea you're in 19th century Russia. The rich female erudite. She's crying. She's in the theater. She's watching a play. The, the hero of the play gets killed and she's crying in the theater. While outside her servant, standing by the horse, just like he was told to do, he's freezing to death and he does actually die. You see, which one do you think is God? God weeps for the real stuff. He weeps for the lost. God cares for the lost and he sends us his own out to go get them. If you like, we're the brooms and we're the lights that God uses as the means to save some. Francis Thompson, Thompson poem, The Hound of Heaven. It's a good poem, very hard to read, but he has his opening line, it's what he says, I fled him, God, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the, the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. And then the poem turns a corner. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy. He says, nothing shelters you will not shelter with me. And then the writer gives up. And in fact, the line of the writer goes like this. It is done. My mangled youth lies dead beneath the heap. My days have crackled and gone up in smoke. And he says, so it was done. And it was done. I and their delicate fellowship was one. Now, if your head's spinning at that poem, you're saying, this is still summer. Don't take us there. I understand. I got a much simpler one for you. It's the 99. It's the, it's the hymn of the 99 sheep. And it says this. There were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. But one was out on the hills away, far out from the gates of gold, away on the mountains wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. And then someone says, Lord, you have the ninety and nine. Aren't they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, this of mine has wandered far from me. 
And then it says this, And though the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. This is our God. And there's nothing like Him, and there's nothing like this in the entire universe, that God seeks out lost men and women who want nothing to do with Him, that God saves by substitution, not by superhuman effort, that God saves sinners when sinners like to sin, when they want to stay in their little sin corner and keep doing it, when we still struggle with sin as mature believers who have been given grace after grace after grace after grace. Are you kidding me? Go home, go Google world religions and tell me if you find one like Christianity, you will not. So it's small wonder why the sinners and tax collectors were close to Jesus. I would be close to Jesus, I hope. And it's no wonder that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering because Christ's message and their message was infinitely apart. And so we should thank God that there is a sense of urgency. There is a sense in God of exacting thoroughness that the search is not done until the lost has been won. And this is our God. And I was thinking, this is how God found me. He found me at seven. Okay, but then at 16, I was, whoa, too far off. And he, a whole mess of wonderful circumstances that brought me back in. And then I got a little too smart for myself in my early 20s and veering off just a bit again and then a host of circumstances just keeping me in because the shepherd won't let the sheep get lost. He's going to keep finding me. So Jesus sups with sinners. He searches for sinners and you would think that everybody would love this kind of thing. Sheep, coin found, happy ending, happy heaven. This is wonderful. But of course, not everybody's happy. And the contrast is very disappointing but it's true and it's our final point. All of heaven rejoices at the repenting of sinners. The contrast is so clear. You have the Pharisees, the religious elite sour about this, and you have all of heaven singing, all of heaven making merry. Verse 7, you can see it if your Bibles are open, more rejoicing in the pres- or excuse me, more rejoicing in heaven over repented sinners. Verse 10, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's two things we should know. Thing number 1, This is written what's called a present active participle. And I would never dare tell you that this late in the sermon if I didn't think it would help you. The idea that is there is this, and it's purposeful. At the exact moment the sinner repents, there is an immediate response in heaven. And at the exact moment, every time a sinner repents, there is always the same immediate response in heaven of heaven. It's a hooray, song, singing, noise, making, mirth. The best is our God, but this is our heaven. And so it's so wonderful to know that heaven is attuned about such wonderful things. If you would, the eyes of heaven all gazing down on earth. And this is wonderful to know that we are being watched this closely. And so here it goes, all of heaven wanting to watch the sinner. And you're like, wait for it, wait for it. He's heard the gospel. She's heard the gospel. Wait for it. Wait for it. They're thinking. They're muttering a little bit. It's okay. They're not done. All of a sudden, yes to Jesus Christ. As soon as they repent, I can't say hooray. Very cool. So I'm going to say it anyway. Hooray! You know, there it is. That's heaven. It should be no less on earth. That's thing number one. Thing number two, in verse 10, the question comes. Who is rejoicing before the angels of God? Is that what 10 says? There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, what's happening there? 
There's somebody in heaven besides the angels of God. Word commentary says this. In late Hebrew and New Testament, for something to be before God is an indirect method of attributing matters to God. It is indirectness and it reveals that God is no more content than is this woman or is the shepherd with what remains to him. There is special importance for them and the chem. That which has been lost has been found. That which has been lost must be restored to him. So what am I saying? Well, this is what I'm saying. We have a God in heaven who makes Mary, who deliberately makes some, some kind of invisible surge of mirth in heaven. The wonders of redemption plan, the suffering of Jesus Christ being revealed as that's the method, that's the way that people get into heaven. And that's why if you look in Revelations, all the songs are about Jesus on his cross and the blood of Christ and the wonder and wonder of God's redeeming love. This is heaven. This is our heaven. This is our God. And we can say this, and we're not trying to be cute, we're not, but we are going to be correct. At the moment of a sinner's repentance in heaven, a wonderful party unfolds. And guess who gives the party? Our Father in heaven. Now, just stay with me for a minute. We're about ready done. In fact, we're almost done. If someone's Christianity is only understood as always working on ourselves, always bits and pieces of self-improvement projects, we're not good enough, so we need to be better. Surely the news of another conversion, of another sinner saying yes to Jesus Christ would just be news. But it wouldn't be big news. Why? They have a religion that keeps them entirely devoted to themselves which is the Pharisees, which is the teachers of the law. Those are the ones who are the unhappy mutterers. But if you have a Christianity that says that Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost, and Jesus keeps looking until he finds what was lost, and he keeps going until the deed is done, and he keeps putting himself in the line of sinners, and he keeps putting themselves in their meal times, and he keeps putting themselves before sinners and before the worst of society, people on the margins, then you have an example that we have a wonderful Savior and we have something wonderful that is to be said about Him and we have something that is akin to what Jesus is telling us here through His words this fine morning. Dear people, this is our God. And who in their right mind would turn their back on this God? This is a wonderful, wonderful story. These are wonderful, wonderful parables. Jesus suffers with sinners Jesus welcomes them. He orders things so that he, in his searching he will find them. He will not give up until they are found and all of heaven will be glad and God Almighty will be glad. And we ought to rejoice in this amazing love because that is the only way any of us here that belong to Christ this morning was found. We were found because he started the thing first. And I think, and I hope this, this is the truth, that all the things that would weigh us down about life as it's being lived, we could just put them aside this morning and every morning and let this wonder mark your thinking and your praying and your living. Because if all of heaven, and heaven is higher than earth, if all of heaven has great joy over repenting sinners, then we who are below, why in the world would we do anything other than that? We have a holy God who in mercy would look upon the lost with urgency, exacting thoroughness, 
completeness until the job is done. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, hear, hear these words. If you have ears to hear, then hear him. I thank you for your attention. Now let's bow together as we pray and sing our closing song. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that was within me. Bless his holy name. God and Father, in relation to these things, don't let us be ungrateful, unthankful, found children. I pray that we would be grateful, thankful, useful, found children that we would imitate our master, Jesus, because our master knows best. Now may the love of God, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain on each of us, both now and forevermore. Amen.